Welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of CJR. This week, race and journalism. For those of you who are smart enough and lucky enough to be CJR subscribers, uh, you'll soon be receiving uh, our latest print issue in the mail, um, which is devoted entirely to the subject of race. To kick this issue off, we had an event this week at the Columbia Journalism School where we gathered a lot of smart people to talk about why the number of people of color in newsrooms hasn't shifted much over the last two decades. The numbers are something like 17% of newsroom staffers are non-white versus 37% of the American population. But I thought the highlight of the day was a conversation between Jelani Cobb, a New Yorker writer and professor of journalism at Columbia, who also was the guest editor of this issue of the magazine, and Lydia Polgreen, who's the editor of HuffPost. And the two of them had just an incredibly enlightening and thoughtful talk about why the numbers are what they are and what it means for how we think about coverage. So this is a lightly edited version of their conversation that happened here. And you can read so much more in the print issue of CJR and on our website, cjr.org, where we're running all of these stories for the next week or so. So enjoy. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Jelani Cobb, and I had the really wonderful honor of being the guest editor. Uh, one of the high points is that I get to have this conversation with Lydia Polgreen, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of Huffington Post, um, formerly a reporter at the um, New York Times. This is the 10th anniversary, more or less, of the election of Barack Obama. And there was this narrative of post-raciality um, that came up. Uh, but we have a whole other set of euphemisms, you know, racially tinged, racially charged, economic anxiety, and so on. And I, I'd like to start by asking about the way that the media handles race and the way that those dynamics come about. Like, where does this come from, uh, this kind of artificial language and the way that we talk about this subject? I mean, I think the true opiate of the American people is amnesia. I was a reporter in South Africa for a couple of years, and South Africa's process of truth and reconciliation was deeply flawed and incomplete, um, but at least they had one, right? Um, <laughs> at least there was an effort to grapple with, um, you know, uh, genocide and apartheid and, um, you know, the horrific injustice that the minority wreaked on the majority there. When I came back to the United States in the twilight of the Obama years, when everybody had this kind of loosey-goosey feeling of, oh, you know, we We've, we've kind of crossed over to the other side now. We've gotten to this place where we're never going to end up back where we were. We've made too much progress now. Um, and it was in the teeth of that, of that complacency, I think, that, that we saw really deeply, deeply flawed um, coverage of the 2016 election um, on, on so many different fronts. And, and I think that it really does come back to that sense of amnesia, that desire that we have to, um, to, 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 to drink laudanum and forget our past and think that we've come so far and it's impossible for us to slide back. But our history has been one of going forward two steps, going back four steps, the past really never is past. And that these um, 
these issues of division, of racial competition, of prejudice, of, um, of exclusion, they, they're just as present today as they've ever been in our history, um, if not more so. And I think that the puncturing of that illusion of progress, particularly on the issue of race, really lies at the root of the, of the, of the most atrocious um, sins that journalists have committed in the past couple of years. But it seems that the grand narratives around these issues, particularly race, have a tendency to reflect whatever bombs the conscience of a particular middle-class white reporter collective. I mean, I, so at the time, and I, I don't mean to pick on the New York Times, but that's where I spent most of my career. I think the same thing could have unfolded at any major newsroom. But my office was right next to where all the political reporters for the New York Times sat. And, um, you know, becoming a political reporter who covers a, a, a presidential campaign is a really big deal at the New York Times. It's a, it's a very prestigious uh, job to have. It's something that they, they tend to groom people for over time. And I realized at one point, looking out, that essentially everybody covering the 2016 presidential race was white. And now, it'd be one thing if you just kind of at the, in, in just a moment thought, oh, you know, well, let's just grab whoever we have and put them in these jobs. But it's a painstaking process. And eventually they did hire uh, Yamish Alcindor, a very, very talented political uh, reporter. And, uh, and I think there were a couple of other people who came on to the reporting staff kind of late in the game. But um, the fact that that hadn't been built into the plans for staffing the 2016 race from the beginning, and that when that process of mentoring and grooming had started, that, that uh, somehow um, people of color fell out of the equation was, was really sad. And, and it's not out of, out of lack of good intent. I mean, um, I'm a product of um, the really aggressive efforts that the New York Times has made to, to, diversify, to diversify its newsroom over the years. What were things that you saw that were not covered to the degree that they should have been covered, um, covered incorrectly? I guess, what were the implications of that? Not necessarily at the Times, but just like, more broadly speaking. I mean, I think one really unexplored story in the 2016 cycle was the troubled relationship between the Democratic Party and the African-American voter base on which its coalition is, is, is founded. That, I felt, was a problem. But like, I think also just a fundamental failure to take Donald Trump's racism seriously. And, and, and what's remarkable is that there were a handful of reporters, almost all of them um, African-American or people of color in general, who did see that peril very early on and, and tried to, you know, blink the flashing red lights. But, um, you know, I think there's a deep discomfort in this country about calling things what they are when it comes to race. Um, we, we use the term racially charged. You use, you know, um, racially tinged. I mean, there are a bunch of others. You spoke about economic Inflammatory, anxiety. right, you're sure. Inflammatory, yeah. you know. But look... It's, it, it's only getting worse, right? There is a kind of opposing force to frankness, which is largely journalistic reputation management. You, you have this crisis of institutions that are so afraid of being tagged as partisan that, that they're essentially being derelict in their duty to just tell the truth. Even, I think, before the election, but uh, people were saying that the that reporters were conflicted because the Trump voter was you know, a family member of theirs. And I thought that was a very pat kind of way of, of analyzing a complicated phenomenon. And then the election happened, 
And I became like, I don't know, I guess like the Negro whisperer. Like, because <laughs> I mean, white colleague after white colleague came up and told me, well, I'm not speaking to my family members. Um, I didn't go home for Thanksgiving. Uh, some people were saying, I haven't been home in a year, like mm. much later. I was um, in, let me not give identifying details here. <laughs> Let's just say I was in a significant gathering in which I was the only black person, and I felt like Oprah. I guess was I like, wasn't available that night. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it was like the confessional, like you could, the confessional Negro. Totally. And I wonder if like the bigger takeaway is that there is there is almost this kind of symbolic alliance between people who have this like kind of cultural affinity to one another and that the divide between your the people at that dinner party and the people back home is is less that like you know um i'm like morally pure it's just that they're you know educated and they move to a city and they have a you know some fancy white collar job that brings them to a uh, a dinner party like the one that you just described but we've all been that like magical Negro, right? That one who's in, you know invited to a dinner party to to help um, the nice white liberals feel better about the state of the country, right? Like I go to these all the time. We should coordinate our calendars so we can divide and conquer. Um, right, exactly. But <laughs> like, wait, are you going to the one on the fifteenth? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I think that I think that that just speaks to this like deep, deep, deep guilt and shame that we have in this country and those who are awake enough to know that they should have guilt and shame like good for them but they also need to take action you know um and they should probably have more black friends than just you but i, I think there's another element of this too that which is that there is a at least seemingly a cognizance of this in some arenas so i remember going back again 10 years ago when obama was elected and i think that there was a moment in which outlets were looking around and saying there are more black people living in the White House than working for this publication or working for this, um, you know, this show. And you saw a kind of cluster of voices that were emerging, I think, that got an opportunity to talk at that point. And then I think it just, toward the end of the Obama era, started to disappear. The most ex kind of visible example was MSNBC. Yeah. Um, where I think they referred to it as the unblackening, uh, in which you know Torre left and uh, Melissa, uh, Harris, Melissa Perry. Harris Perry left, right. and then you know uh, Tamron Hall left in in service of hiring Megyn Kelly, which right. was I, I, that didn't really work out. <laughs> really, it did. I was yeah, I was thinking that that was such a brilliant move on their part, um, and I wonder if you have any insight into how these changes become more institutionalized and more permanent. I mean, I think that, look, TV news is part of the problem, not part of the solution, right? I mean, people complain about social media being the driver of division in our country, but I think it is a necessary but not sufficient, um, and the thing that makes it sufficient is the existence of, of cable television news, and getting into a period where you know, cable TV seems to think that it needs to have a shouter from the left and a shouter from the right rather than, you know, great professional broadcast reporting talent um, definitely gets us to the place where we, we lose um, smart analytical voices. I mean, look, 
why is it that you know Rachel Maddow um, you know stays and Melissa Harris Perry goes? But I think that it has a lot to do with the complexion of our politics and the moving on from the Obama era and thinking, okay, now we're going on to something else. We're getting back to politics as usual, and we want people on TV who look like the politicians who are running this country. But look, I also think that when it comes to major roles in journalism, people of color are held to this extraordinarily high standard, which as they should be. I mean, everybody who has a leadership role should be held to a high standard. But I remember having a conversation with someone who was looking to find an editor for a relatively small newsroom. And they said, you know who my perfect person for this would be? Is Dean Baquet. He's really great. And I just thought, are you freaking kidding me? Like, he's the editor of the New York Times. Right. You know? It's like, if, if, you're, if you're like, I want somebody to run this newsroom and that's the like standard by which I'm gonna judge, I'm like, you don't want a person of color. You, you know, you, you want like, LeBron James, you know, you want like a... For your, for your pickup league. For your pickup league. When, the, when, when major news organizations right now are thinking about diversity, they're not thinking about, um, you know, racial and ethnic diversity. They're not thinking about gender identity diversity. They're thinking about so-called political diversity, right? They want to make sure they've got a right-winger and, and, and someone, and usually a right-winger and a centrist, like not even a right-winger and somebody from the left, right? So in the rush to have um, you know, this quote unquote balance, I think you lost a lot of people of color, certainly from the airwaves. Um, newsrooms um, like the New York Times, NBC and elsewhere, they uh, kind of strip mine our newsroom for diverse talent um, on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I think it's great that there are lots of opportunities out there and that people want to diversify their newsrooms, but in an environment where smaller newsrooms are often stagnant or, or actually shrinking, um, and the best talent from communities of color uh, or other under, underrepresented communities are going to work at big news organization, that's a great thing. But if those smaller news organizations are stagnating, then there's not that next crop coming up right. and coming the, in. The kind so. of farm league yeah. system. Of yeah. it. While we're talking about you know, small uh, institutions being really hollowed out uh, by the changes to digital and you know lots of other things that are going on that the tectonic shifts inside uh, media we almost don't talk about the traditional system that's nurtured talent of people of color which has been the newspapers like African certainly African American publications absolutely yeah um, that when I first started writing at the New Yorker I would get these really curious emails where people would say where have you been <laughs> <laughs> I've been at Essence. <laughs> I've been at Ebony. I've been I've been writing for twenty years yeah. in a bunch of black publications yeah. that you like you never pick up. Yeah. Um, and even editors, other editors who you would think would be when people ask the question of like how do you diversify if you are poaching, um, if you're just going to kind of do the New York Yankees uh, approach to like steal everyone else's best players. Yeah at least the Steinbrenner era Yankees. But if you're gonna do that approach to it, they're literally publications that are like right there yeah. that have people of color that are working for them, but somehow or another there's never that kind of crossover. I mean, I think that that just exposes like some fundamental problems with journalism, right? If you are a journalist who's come up in the in the quote unquote like race press, right? Mm -hmm. Somehow you haven't developed the same kind of quote unquote objectivity that one would expect in a reporter for the New York Times. You know, there's a whole bunch of euphemisms that people use to talk about people who work in the uh, the the so-called race press. I mean, we partnered with the St. Louis American, which is one of the oldest African American newspapers in the country, and um, 
you know, the role that that news organization plays in, you know, the coverage of, um, long before Ferguson, the coverage of, um, you know, the issue of police brutality, um, you know, housing inequality, like all kinds of things, is just remarkable. And the reporters that they have on their staff are so talented. And I'm like, why are these, why are these people not getting picked up by other news organizations? And some of them, frankly, want to be working in that, in that context and want to be, um, you know, speaking directly to that audience. And I think that's a really interesting shift that's happened. There was a time when, um, um, particularly black reporters did not want to get pigeonholed as covering, right. you know, black communities or black issues. But what's interesting is, and I see this on my staff, is that um, there is a real hunger um, among young um, African-American writers to speak directly to the issues of, of our community and, and to an audience that is made up of our community, mm -hmm. and much less of an interest in, I'm going to explain what's going on with black folk to white folk. Mm -hmm. um, Lots of uh, journalists do talk to me about this kind of weariness of having to be the person. Once, if you are the person who's in the room, the weariness that comes with being the person in the room. I think Kyle mentioned this really great um, term that people were using. Black checking. Black checking. <laughs> um, and so there's that job in addition to uh, you know all the other responsibilities that come with that. And I just wonder, uh, do you see the landscape of this changing? Do you see this getting better? Well, I personally black check every article that runs on HuffPost. That's a joke, I don't. Um. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you do have a team of black checkers? Like We have a team of black checkers, <laughs> just like at the New Yorker, but black. It's like um, the Soul Train, yeah. Soul Train line at the end of yeah, the day. I mean, we can yeah. just kind of run with this. We had a really interesting internal debate about a piece that we did about Rihanna um, wearing dreads in, um, in Ocean's 8. We have these story critique sessions, you know, and one reporter said, this story was, was, was terrible because it didn't take account for the fact that as a Caribbean woman, Rihanna wearing dreads has a particular significant, you know, meaning. And, um, and we had this like very lively roundtable discussion about it where it was like, look, I'm a black person, I'm not of Caribbean descent, does that mean that like I can't cover Rihanna's hair? Like is that, is that where we're at? Is that where we're at? Like, and, but I'd rather have that problem where like we're deciding like which kinds of black people can cover black things rather than like only having one black person to cover all black things. Um, well, I mean, it, it's funny because we have the other side of it, which is a, a question that's come up um, really more times than I can count since you know, I've been here at Columbia, which is that very often there are white students who feel like they can't write about issues that affect yeah. people of color. And you know, one student just said this to me, and I said, imagine how a newsroom would work if someone was like, okay, there's been a police shooting of a young person, where's the black guy? <laughs> Get over there. Oh no, wait, 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 the person who was shot's white, Come back. You know, yeah. We're going to actually sit down with the ethnic board yeah. and, and assign people. Yeah. I think the issue is much more um, about making it such that people who are writing about things that have elements of race prominently or uh, because beneath the surface but are pertinent, that they do so with the same sort of nuance and care yep. and the same sort of professionalism that you would bring if you were covering the economy. I spent my entire career as a reporter in countries that I had no connection to whatsoever where I had to 
try and, and inhabit and understand and educate myself and get the nuance. And, but you can do it, and it just requires a lot of work. Um, if you have a newsroom that is really kind of studded with all kinds of different people at all kinds of different levels who feel empowered to guide and speak up and say, you know, you might want, you might want to th rethink the lead on that story. Or, you know, there's a nuance. Um, you, your ideal newsroom is one in which, you know, there is a collective responsibility at all levels. Um, and so that whoever picks up the story, it's not just going to be the reporter out there on their own. Um, it's going to be the reporter working with a group of colleagues who uh, among them, amongst them themselves have a depth of knowledge and expertise. In that sort of collective, you hope to get to something that really does approximate the truth in what's really happening.